It's so good to be here. Um, as Bauer mentioned, Dan has been serving our church for uh, over six years uh, on our provisional eldership, and not for pay or for prestige, because you don't get either of those, uh, <laughs> uh, but for the praise of God's glory. And, um, and really, all your pastors at Crossway exemplify that, what it's like to live, to store up treasures in heaven and not on earth. And uh, we had a great time with Bauer preaching at our retreat a few weeks ago. Uh, his preaching was stirring and convicting, uh, but it was also just helpful to ha- just have Bauer and Linda there because uh, our church is mostly very young believers. And, and to have a couple, a seasoned couple that had been through many things in life and, and whose tested genuineness of faith is evident and that's just their presence there in and of itself was encouraging, I think, for a lot of people in our church. And, uh, um, and the fact that I can, and there are many precious saints like that here, uh, which is why I love worshiping with you guys. I mean, I came in and started singing so many precious words we sang. I mean, our God saves, uh, glory to God alone, yet not I, but Christ in me. Uh, and that, I don't know many of you here, but that we can sing that from our heart of hearts together because of what Jesus has done for us. That's amazing uh, that I don't, and, and that's um, our God, uh, our, what our God's doing. And uh, please uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 18. I'm going to preach from that passage, verses 1 to 18. I'm going to go through part of verse 18. Acts chapter 18, verses 1 to 18. And let me pray for the reading and preaching of God's word. Heavenly Father, we humble ourselves before you and before your word. Address us, for we are listening. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Acts 18, verses 1 to 18. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. 
And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. This is God's holy and authoritative word. Um, if we follow the, the ministry of Apostle Paul throughout the book of Acts uh, in, or read about it in his epistles, it's easy to think that he was this untiring, zealous missionary, unfazed by persecutions, gladly enduring slander, beating, and stoning for the, for the sake of Jesus Christ, bold and fearless like a lion. And that is an inaccurate assessment to a certain degree. Um, however, we also must remember that Paul was just another mortal man. And like the rest of us, he did gladly endure persecution for Jesus' sake, but that doesn't mean that the persecution in and of itself was ever pleasant. Even the apostle Paul was not immune to pain or fear in his ministry. In his first letter to the Corinthians, after saying that God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong, Paul says in chapter 2, verse 3, regarding his own time with the Corinthians, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And so this is the passage where we see Paul ministering to the Corinthians in the book of Acts. And so we see some of what he's talking about, his weakness and fear and much trembling. But despite this, he had a very effective ministry among them. He, he persevered in the proclamation of the gospel. And he had a, so this teaches us, this passage teaches us how to persevere in our own proclamation of the gospel, in our own witness, in our lives. And this is my main point, that God's presence and God's people appointed for salvation, those two things, God's presence and God's people appointed for salvation, spur us on to persevere in our proclamation of the gospel. So we're going to talk first about God's presence uh, and then about uh, the proclamation, the, uh, the people appointed for salvation. Now, even though Paul was waiting for Silas and Timothy to rejoin him in Athens, uh, he, it seems he needed to proceed from there. So he, he goes to Corinth in verse 1. And in Corinth, Paul has an unexpected encounter. Verses 2 to 3, he, he finds a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. So these, this couple has recently left Rome, the, the capital. 
and this was because Emperor Claudius commanded that the Jews leave Rome. And we know this, this is verified uh, from you know, Roman historians and other sources. In 41 AD, Emperor Claudius commanded the Jews to follow Greek religion. Stop following your own religion. You know, stop following Christ. You know, it's come, it followed the Roman religions. Uh, and, but it seems that the edict didn't really work. It wasn't effective because eight years later in 49 AD, he expels all the Jews from Rome. And, and this is what Roman historian Suetonius writes in Quote, since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Christus, it's Christ, Claudius expelled them from Rome. So amazing uh, testimony of Christians making an impact, such a stir in the city of Rome that they are expelled wholesale uh, by Emperor Claudius. Uh, and, and in God's providence, and you, you think from their perspective that this is not a good thing, right? I mean, you want to be at the center of influence in the Roman Empire. You want to be in the city. You want to be able to minister there. You want to have churches planted there. That's what you think, and you think this would be a very discouraging thing from their perspective, right? I mean, we just lost our platform. Uh, we just lost the major city of the empire. But that's what's amazing here is that this, that Claudius would have never guessed that Aquila and Priscilla being expelled from Rome would lead to them meeting Paul, the Apostle Paul, which leads to a long-term fruitful partnership between them, right? Claudius would have never known that they were also tent makers by trade and that they'd be able to partner with Paul and sustain their ministry together. Uh, And Claudius would have never known that Aquila and Priscilla would accompany this great apostle to the Gentiles to Ephesus, as it says in verses 18 and 19. And there they will serve as the home base for the Ephesian church, as 1 Corinthians 16, 19 tells us. This same Aquila and Priscilla that that were expelled. And Claudius would have never known that Aquila and Priscilla, as Paul says in Romans 16, 4, would risk their necks for Paul's life so that all the churches of the Gentiles who have benefited from Paul's ministry owe their thanks to Aquila and Priscilla. Amazing, right? And Claudius would have never known that Aquila and Priscilla would not only support the Apostle Paul, but that they would also enlighten Apostle Apollos in in Acts 18 to teach God's more, the way of God more accurately. Claudius could have never guessed these things. Well, that's the difference between him and God. Unlike Claudius, God sees and knows all things, and God is able to do all things. He's present in all things, and he's directing even the seeming bad news of Christians being expelled, Jews being expelled from Rome for his own purposes, to, to build his kingdom. God's plan ultimately prevails. God was with Paul, and God was with Aquila and Priscilla. And there in Corinth, Paul does what he always does in every city he visits. It says in verse 4, he reasoned in the synagogue with every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. And verse 5 tells us that when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word. I love that description of Paul when they find him. He's occupied with the word. It's the same word that's translated in, in the Gospel of Luke and other places as being seized or surrounded Paul was seized by, captured by, surrounded by, absorbed in the Word of God. Um, and that's what was most foremost in his mind, that there are many things in life that occupy us, right? 
But we must take care that as God's people, we are occupied with his word. Uh, We should be in his word. We should be under the authority of his word. We should be proclaiming his word. We should be surrounded, absorbed in his word because we're not just fishers of fish. We're fishers of men. And Paul was so invested in the proclamation of the word and so desirous of his Jewish compatriots to repent and believe in Jesus that when they opposed and reviled him, it says he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. He's, he's a little upset. <laughs> and, and the fact that he's upset shows how dear these people were to him. He cared about them. And uh, he cared so much, you know, uh, and, and he, he uses the expression, uh, your blood be on your own heads. And that's an expression that comes from Ezekiel 33, which says that when a watchman posted on the, on the walls of the city see an enemy army approaching, he's supposed to blow the trumpet. Uh, and if he does not blow the trumpet when he sees the army approaching and the disaster befalls the city, then the blood will be on the watchman's head. But if he is faithful to blow the trumpet and to warn of the approaching army to the city, but then people refuse to heed the warning and stay in the city and, are, and, 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 and die or, or perish, then the blood will be on their own heads, right? And so Paul's using that at, at illustration. He's, he's washing his hands clean. He's saying, I warned you. I preach the gospel to you, but you refuse to listen. So your blood will be on your own heads. Uh, And nowadays, many people in our society are increasingly preoccupied with ethical consumption, right? We recognize that how we buy and how we dispose of what we've used all have implications. It affects people's livelihoods. And so, you know, we, we, you know, use some people, some of us at least, (laughs) use fair trade products or coffee or, you know, ethically sourced foods. And and, and all of this is an effort to, to not get blood on our hands, right? Uh, to be innocent in this matter. To, and, but do we also think about the urgency of evangelism in this way? God has already fixed the day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's given proof of this by raising him from the dead. It's Jesus. The judgment day is coming. And we Christians are the watchmen. Are we blowing the trumpet? Are we warning people? Because that day is surely coming. Are we sounding the alarm? Are we showing them the way to salvation? Are we innocent in this matter? Or do we have blood on our hands? If we really believe in heaven and hell, if we really believe that this is a matter of life and death, that people's eternal destiny is at stake, How can we not be occupied with the word to proclaim it? Uh, 20th century American pastor Lee Rutten Scarborough says this, if we could only have a five-minute glimpse into hell, our evangelism would be changed for a lifetime. People being tormented in hell for eternity are not going to be impressed with us that we were too busy or that we were too polite or considerate to tell them what was head, what was coming. This is why Paul faithfully sounds the alarm to his fellow Jews, but, but because they rejected the gospel, Paul says, from now on, I will go to the Gentiles. 
This doesn't mean that Paul will never again preach to the Jews. Uh, he is just saying that while he's in Corinth, he is not turning his attention to the Gentiles. In verse 7, he goes to the house of Titius Justus, who was a Gentile God-fearer, who had apparently heard Paul in the synagogue and come to faith in Jesus. And as Paul leaves the Jews, he shakes out his garments, which is a similar uh, gesture as you know, shaking off the dust from one's feet that Jesus uh, speaks of. And, uh, and it was a common practice among the Jews to shake off the dust from their feet. But they only did that when they were leaving Gentile territory. Oh, here are the pagans. Here are the, the not chosen people. You know, I, let's wipe off the dust from my feet as we leave. That's what they did. And, and what's remarkable about Jesus' teaching and what's remarkable about what Paul's doing here is that he's shaking off the dust when he's leaving a Jewish synagogue. By this, you know, Paul and Jesus, they taught the radical message that all those who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, even the Jews, regardless of your ethnic heritage or spiritual pedigree, your ethnic background, if you reject the Lord Jesus as your king and as your savior, then you are lost. Right? This is a radical message. He's telling Jews, you are lost. Um, and the, the gospel invitation is universal, but only those who repent and believe in Jesus may be saved. It's another reason why we have an urgency to proclaim the gospel. And though most Corinthian Jews, it seems, rejected Christ, uh, not all of them did, because verse 8 tells us that Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So you can now imagine that this spells trouble for Paul. Um, why is because you know, the Jews have effectively kicked Paul out of their Jewish synagogue, preventing him from teaching there, and, and so Paul had to go and get a new venue. But one of their own, the ruler of the synagogue, the person in charge of the religious and administrative and political dealings of the Jewish community, has believed in Jesus and his entire household. Right? This is, as you can imagine, a cause for deep, embarrassment among the Jews who are trying to revile and oppose Paul. Oh, don't follow that guy. He's a charlatan. He's, he's fake. He doesn't know what he's saying. And then here's their most learned and respected member of their synagogue, the Jewish community, saying, I think he's right. <laughs> In fact, I'm bringing my whole family along <laughs> to follow Jesus. And and the reason why this spells trouble for Paul is if you look at the preceding chapters in the book of Acts, every time there is fruitful ministry, inevitably there is fierce persecution and opposition. When, when Paul was in Pisidian Antioch in chapter 13, the Jews saw the crowds that were gathering, flocking to Paul, and they were filled with jealousy, it says, and they begin to contradict him, revile him, stir persecution against Paul and Barnabas. When Paul was in Iconium in chapter 14, the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. And they tried to mistreat them and stone them. In Lystra in four, chapter 14, 19, the Jews from Antioch and Iconium who followed Paul there persuaded the crowds and they actually stoned him. <laughs> they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, leaving him for dead. 
And in, in Thessalonica, in chapter 17, the Jews were again jealous, taking some wicked men of the rabble. They formed a mob, and, and they set the city in an uproar. And after this, in Berea, chapter 17, again, the Jews from Thessalonica pursued Paul there and agitated and stirred up the crowds so that he had to get shipped off to Athens for his safety. And now through Paul's ministry, Crispus, the leader of the Jewish synagogue and his entire house, along with many of the Corinthians, have come to faith in Jesus and have been baptized. And so Paul knew, I mean, this is not his first rodeo. He, he knows what's coming. Oh, now there's going to be some fierce persecution. So understandably, Paul has some apprehension. And it's not that Paul wasn't willing to suffer for the sake of Christ. He was. In chapter 21, verse 13, he says, I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. He was a Christian brother who, and a soldier who was ready to lay down his life in service of his king. But that didn't make the violent persecution pleasant. And Paul was weary, apprehensive. His missionary journeys have been arduous, and he has many battle scars to show for it. And we know that Paul was afraid because it says in verses 9 to 10 that the Lord appears to him in a vision to reassure him, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no one will attack to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. Verse 9 contains two commands. Uh, verse 10 supplies the two bases or the two grounds for those commands. So the first command in the first half of verse 9 is do not be afraid. And the reason is given in the first half of verse 10. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. So do not be afraid because I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. And Paul is, and, and, and so that's God's protective presence. And then there's the second half in verse 9, the command, go on speaking and do not be silent. That's the second command, and the reason for that second command is given in the second half of verse 10, for I have many in this city who are my people, right? So go on speaking and don't be silent because there are many people here who are my people who will hear your proclamation of the gospel and come to faith in me, right? So we'll look at those promises in turn. First, let's look at the promise of God's presence. Do not be afraid, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. I love this um, uh, encounter with Jesus that Paul has because it's an amazing kindness of God. God didn't owe Paul anything, right? He doesn't owe us anything. Paul was a rebel who was persecuting the church of God. He was saved from the fires of hell by the grace and mercy of God alone. And Paul often describes himself in the letters as a slave of Christ. He is a slave of Christ. He is a servant who is completely disposed to the will of his master. And God could have had Paul endure another round of beatings and stonings in Corinth. He would have been totally within his rights as God, as Paul's Lord, to do so. But God doesn't do that. Instead, the Lord personally appears to Paul. There are places where he sends an angel or a messenger to comfort his people. Here, it says the Lord himself, the Lord Jesus, appears to Paul and says to him, do not be afraid, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. That's the kindness of God. 
This is the kind of gentle and patient Lord that we serve. He is a master who knows when his servant is weary. He's a commander-in-chief who knows when his soldier is fearful. He's a father who knows when his child needs his comforting love. And so in this moment of Paul's weakness and fear and much trembling, the Lord comes with reassurance and consolation and encouragement God's not a harsh and rigid taskmaster that just goads you harder and harder and never lets on. No, our Lord, he knows our weaknesses. He sympathizes with us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Why? It says in Psalm 103, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. In the same way that earthly parents show grace to their children, saying to themselves, oh, they're only kids. They're only children. Our Heavenly Father knows our frame and says, oh, they're only dust. And He's compassionate toward us. And when God is with us to protect us, of course, we have nothing to fear. In Exodus 3, when God commands Moses to go to Egypt and free his people from slavery, Moses responds, who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. That's a very sensible objection from a human point of view, isn't it? Yeah. Who, who am I? Yeah, who are you, Moses? He's a nobody. He has no army at his command. Who is he to go and confront Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the most powerful king in the ancient world? But God's response is quite simple. Remember what he says. I will be with you. Similarly, in Jeremiah 1, when God commissions Jeremiah to be a prophet to the nations, Jeremiah responds, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. This, too, is a sensible objection from a human point of view, but, I mean, Jeremiah is no Cicero or Abraham Lincoln or Frederick Douglass. He is not eloquent, he says. He admits he doesn't know how to speak. He's an inexperienced youth. But God's response to him in Jeremiah 1.8 is also quite simple. Do not be afraid of them. Why? For I am with you to deliver you. God tells Paul the exact same thing here. Do not be afraid. Why? For I am with you. You're probably not worried about getting stoned to death for sharing the gospel like Paul might have been. Although I did just talk to someone this weekend who went to jail for proclaiming the gospel here in the U.S. Um, what, what, but, but what fears are keeping you from sharing the gospel with your friends and neighbors and family members? Are you afraid that they'd reject you? Or that you'd stumble over your words and embarrass yourself? Or that you'd be stumped by their questions Whatever your fears might be, God's answer to you is exactly the same as it was to Moses, as it was to Jeremiah, as it is to Paul. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Why? For I am with you. Because evangelism does not ultimately depend on our competence, but on the presence of the Lord, on His sovereign grace. So the question 
you should be asking is not who am I, but who is the Lord who goes with me? Paul believes God's promise when he hears it. So verse 11 tells us that he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. That's a long time for Paul's standards to stay in one place to preach the gospel. And we see God keeping his promise to Paul in verses 12 to 7. As Paul anticipated, the jealous Jews make a united attack on Paul, starting in verse 12, when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, which we know um, it, it, it is sometime within that, uh, his reign, the Jews brought a legal charge against Paul to the proconsul, saying in verse 13, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But the proconsul summarily dismisses the case. He says in verses 14 to 15, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. This seems like a simple um, kind of verdict, but this is actually quite a consequential verdict because now there's this internal debate like among among the Roman rulers. Is this an actual challenge to the Roman rule or is this an internal debate among the Jews? And this is, a, this is a ruling that has huge implications for the fledgling church because it's the first time that a Roman official issues a legal verdict concerning the Christians, essentially giving them legal right to exist and to be a recognized religion of sorts. Right. The Jews cannot persecute Christians now as this, these heretics or these, you know, he's saying, no, they have just as much right as you do to practice. They wanted Christians banned. They wanted Christians forbidden from practicing their religion, but instead the Jews ended up tying their own hands behind their backs, and Paul is now able to freely proclaim the gospel in Corinth. Amazing fulfillment of God's promise. It seems that Gallio had little patience for the Jews. He thought they were wasting his time, so he says he drove them from the tribunal. tribunal. And the Jews who've just been defeated in court are understandably very angry. And it says in verse 17 that they seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. And Gallio paid no attention to any of this. So remember in verse 8, we were told that Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, making him uh, and therefore unfit in the eyes of the Jews to continue to lead the synagogue. And so Sosthenes is his replacement Poor guy, he just took over not that long ago. And now the Jews who put him in charge are beating him. They wanted to beat Paul up, but what did God say? No one will harm you. Don't be afraid. I am with you. Spectacular fulfillment of that promise. And, uh, you know, he doesn't, <laughs> Paul doesn't even have to say a word to defend himself. Um, that's God's presence, his promise that, that is with us. And the Spirit of God, Paul, God sent his own, the, the Lord Jesus, his son, personally came to comfort Paul. And we have the very Spirit of God comforting us, empowering us, indwelling us. That's God's presence that goes with us. And the second command and the promise that accompanied, uh, accompanied it in verses 9 to 10 is also fulfilled. Lord has said to Paul in the vision, go on speaking and do not be silent, for I have many in this city who are my people. So Paul was already beginning to see this realized 
in Crispus coming to faith and many people with him coming to faith. Uh, and, and God's sovereign prior appointment, his divine election is what's in view here. He says, God appointed many in this city for salvation. There are many in this city who are my people. And so go on speaking to get all those people. And so it's a, uh, God's command, his choosing sovereignly a people for himself is not something that prevents Paul from evangelizing, but it's something that actually spurs him on to go. Right? Go on speaking and do not be silent. So instead, knowing that there are people whom God has already chosen to save should motivate us because that means when we faithfully proclaim the gospel, there will be a response. People will believe and they will come. So this is not a deterrence. And there were many in the city of Corinth that God had chosen to be his people. 1 Corinthians 1, 14 to 16, Paul mentions that he baptized Crispus and Gaius and the household of Stephanus and that there were many others that Paul did not personally baptize who became Christians and members of the Corinthian church. This is Paul writing to the, to the Corinthian believers. And not only that, get this, in chapter 1, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians, Paul mentions our brother Sosthenes huh, as a co sender of the letter, and it's possible that Paul mentions him precisely because people knew who he was, that it's this very Sosthenes who was beaten after taking over the rulership of the synagogue. There are many in the city who are my people. That promise is being fulfilled too. And so Paul stays many days in Corinth to continue to speak of Christ. Paul doesn't say, well, since God has chosen many in Corinth to be saved, they will be saved with or without me, so I guess there's no need for me to stay here after all. No, that's not what he says. That that line of reasoning is totally alien to scriptures. It would have been foreign to Paul's thinking. Paul stays and proclaims the gospel for many days longer, says, precisely because God has said, I have many people in this city who are my people. Even a Franklin and Attleboro and Milford and Foxborough. I believe God says, I have many in this city who are my people. Remember, Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. What we lack is not people who are willing to believe, but people who are willing to share the gospel. And that is very strange indeed because this is great news. Uh, I remember last year, maybe we don't want to think about this again, but um, starting at the end of March 2020, uh, the last, uh, la- lasting for you know, the two months or so during the initial COVID quarantine, you guys know actor John Krasinski? Actor John Krasinski hosted a, a YouTube channel entitled Some Good News, you know, and his idea was that he, he thought that there would be a lot of people like him in light of all this bad news that just were desperate to hear some good news. Uh, and so he created a channel dedicated entirely to good news. And he shared some good news, but that good news is, is nothing compared to the good news we get to share. Our God saved. Yet not I, but Christ in me. Every single human being in the world has sinned against God and is destined for bloodshed. 
destined for death. Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Someone's blood had to be shed. And it was bound to be ours. It should have been ours. But Jesus interposed his precious blood. We had blood on our hands, but Jesus took that upon himself. He died, and he was raised victoriously from the dead. And it's because of him that we can be washed by his blood, cleansed, reconciled, united with Jesus, communion with God. That's the good news we get to proclaim. So I hope I will hear news, and this is what we're trying to do in Cambridge, and, and I know you guys are doing this here in Franklin. Um, thank you for your partnership in the gospel. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I do ask that you would empower this dear and precious local church. Remind us all of your faithful presence. You are with us. And remind us also of your merciful sovereign choosing Help us to believe that there are indeed many here who are your people. Use us, Lord, to bring those people to your house for worship, back into the fold of your flock. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.